2009. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Albany, uh, Dr. Constantine Albany. Uh, he's from Indiana University, and um, he did his residency in internal medicine at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in Columbia University, and then he was uh, fellow and then quickly chief fellow at uh, hematology and medical oncology at Indiana University uh, Simon Cancer Center. And right now he's an associate professor of medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. And he's won several awards, um, Conquer Cancer Foundation, ASCO Merit Award, the ASCO Career Development Award, and the Dr. Email Free Alliance Scholar Award. And Dr. Albany is a uh, clinical oncologist and he specializes in uh, clinical trials for prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and also bladder cancer. And uh, he's also a member of Larry Einhorn's group at Indiana University. So this is the, the famous group that um, worked out how to pretty much cure testicular cancer using cytotoxic uh, chemotherapy regimens. So this is one of, one of the landmark um, success stories in, in chemotherapy, especially for solid tumors. And uh, to this day, Indiana University is one of the major Mecca's uh, referral centers for testicular germ cell tumor patients. Um, Dr. Albany is involved, as I said, in, in many clinical trials, running trials, um, uh, both phase one, phase two, and also multi-center phase three uh, clinical trials. And he's uh, you know, very well published in those areas as well. Um, I got to know uh, Costa, because uh, about three years ago, he called me up on the phone. He, he, he uh, read one of our papers about uh, DNA methylation inhibitors in, in statistical germ cell tumor cells. And he was very enthusiastic. And he said, oh, Mike, we have to collaborate and we have to um, do a trial and do pre some preclinical studies. So I said, sure, let's, let's go for it. So well, it's been a really um, productive collaboration along with Brock Christensen to look at DNA methylation and testicular germ cell tumors. We have uh, one grant and hopefully another grant that's got a good score that we, we might get funded as well. And uh, we've published together on this uh, as well. So um, one of the things that um, I really enjoy about Costa since I've got to know him is that he's a really high energy guy. He's very enthusiastic and he's a really caring uh, physician. Um, so, um, I'm really glad that you know he, he called me three years ago, and, and so he's not only a, a collaborator, but he's, he's been turning out to be a really good friend. So, um, w without further ado, I do have a few things to say about um, conflicts of interest. So, Dr. Albany has financial interest, uh, research uh, grant support. Uh, Indiana receives from Aztec Pharmaceutical. Um, and Alan Hartford here, uh, course director at CME Activity, reports that his relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the presentation he's about to deliver. Uh, Dr. Albany uh, does not intend to discuss any off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he's not receiving any payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So um, I welcome Dr. Albany. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, thank you for the nice introduction. It's a great honor to be here to present this grand round to you. Thank you for all of you guys for uh, attending. Uh, I don't know which microphone I should be using, if this one or... Okay. 
Should I switch this one? Okay, good. Thank you. So uh, my talk today will be um, platinum-resistant germ cell tumor. Uh, I will try to go over the past, the present, and a glimpse into the future. Uh, these are my disclosures, and uh, Dr. Hartford uh, cleared us to, to proceed with the talk today. Uh, so the objective of the talk is to review the biology and clinical features of germ cell tumors, review a milestones in curing germ cell tumors, to summarize some of the epigenetics profiles um, uh, of germ cell tumors, and then hopefully some of the uh, future uh, work we're doing in, in curing platinum refractory germ cell tumor. Uh, so as you know, germ cell tumor is the most common tumors in young men. Uh, we really care for all our patients, but we uh, always pay extra, you know, special care to young men who has uh, years and years uh, to live. And it is still the major cause or a major cause for cancer deaths in this young population. In the United States in 2015, more than 8,000 new cases of testis cancer were diagnosed and about 380 cases uh, or, or patient died of this disease. The incidents for unknown reason are rising. As you can see uh, the, uh, on this graph, over the last few decades, the incidence has been rising in the United States and Europe. The incidence in the United States is about 1 in 270, but it's much higher in Scandinavia, 1 in 100. On the positive note, it is the model for a curable disease. Uh, more than 95% of these patients are cured, and I'm trying, hopefully with the help of uh, Dr. Einhorn and with Mike, to cure the 5% left. We don't want to leave anybody behind. Uh, the risk factors we know about, um, family history seems to increase the risk of testicular cancer. So if a brother or father has history of testicular cancer, um, the uh, uh, siblings will have increased risk of having testicular cancer. A personal history is really important. We always ask our patients uh, if you have born with undescended testicles, if you have hypospadia, impaired sper spermatogenesis. A lot of these patients are presented with uh, infertility problems, and then they get diagnosed with testicular cancer. These three issues are part of a bigger syndrome called testicular dysgenesis syndromes, which uh, seems to underline some of the features of testicular cancers personal history of testicular cancer increase the chances of having another primary in the remaining testicle. Of course, testicular cancer is famous for isochrome uh, I12P, extra copy of the short arm of uh, chromosome 12. And also about 25% of seminomas has KIT mutation. So I like to explain some of the differential histologies of testicular cancer. There are different immunohistochemistry stains and uh, genomics and epigenetics features in this one slide. So bear with me if it is uh, a little bit complicated. So as you know, germ cell tumors are divided into seminomas and non-seminomas. And we believe this whole pathology starts way before birth, uh, when primordial germ cells gain uh, extra copy of 12P or get a kit activation. This leads to this uh, intratubular germ cell neoplasm uh, that can be uh, uh, further differentiated or get rise to a seminoma, uh, which usually has this kit mutation, uh, has a PLAP positive on immunohistochemistry, 
the OCT3, OCT4, which is a, a nanog, are uh, um, stem cell markers are positive, and these tumors are usually SOX17 positive, and MEG-C2, which is a uh, cancer testis antigen uh, marker, are all positive on the seminoma. On the other hand, embryonal carcinoma is one of the most common types of germ cell tumors. It actually has no kit or plap, and it does uh, show the uh, stem cell markers uh, of OCT3, OCT4, and NANOG. It also has the SOX2 uh, expression by immunohistochemistry. So our pathologists use these features to be able to tell embryonal uh, uh, carcinoma from seminoma. However, also it expresses CD30, which is really important uh, for diagnosis. And uh, hopefully, at the end of the talk, we'll show you some exciting treatment to target CD30 and embryonal carcinoma. And of course, we can also see uh, DNA methyltransferase uh, 3B is expressed in this uh, embryonal carcinoma. We believe embryonal carcinoma can further differentiate into choriocarcinoma and yolk sac tumors, and can also differentiate into teratoma which indeed can also give rise to a more dangerous and more uh, uh, really sometimes deadly uh, phenotypes, which malignant transformation of teratoma, which can give rise to either adenocarcinoma or sarcoma, which if metastasized could be deadly. So these tumors are usually negative for all of these pre uh, immunohistochemistry that I showed you above. So not, none of the uh, stem cell markers are positive over here. And of course, choriocarcinoma can express HCG, which is the pregnancy test. Yolk sac tumor usually expresses alpha fetoprotein. The big thing here for us, and that's what led me to, to know Mike, that seminoma seems to be have a very low level of D DNA hypom uh, or methylation, while teratomas, yolk sac tumors, and choriocarcinomas has much higher level of uh, DNA methylations. And embryonal carcinoma seems to have intermediate level of DNA methylation. And this has been known for a while now. Multiple uh, authors uh, and researchers have published on these topics. And they have published a heat map showing different uh, methylation signature for uh, germ cell tumor, whether teratoma or seminoma or yolk sac tumor. So on the left side over here, you can see this is a uh, uh, immunohistochemistry stain for uh, the methylation on a seminoma, you can see it's all blue. There's no staining for methylation. While if you look for embryonal carcinoma and further yolk sac tumor and teratoma, there's much higher uh, immunohistochemistry staining for uh, methylation. So we'll go through step by step. I would like to uh, share because I, you know, I know there is a lot of uh, people from different uh, specialties in, in this room. And we stage testicular cancer um, from stage one, two, and three. There is no stage four testicular cancer. In opposite to any other cancer, stage four meaning usually it's not curable. Testicular cancer, almost always we can cure this cancer. There is, so there is no stage four testicular cancer. If it is localized, oh, sorry. If it is localized to the testis, we call it stage one. If it's spread to the retroperitoneal disease or space, we call that stage two. If it goes beyond uh, to the liver or lung or brain at stage three. I really want to share with you one of the uh, impressive pictures we have published in the New England as an image. Uh, this is a young man in his 30s who presented with a chest pain and has a very impressive chest x-ray. You can see this large mediastinal mass. 
a CT scan was done, and it showed, like you can see, this is a posterior mediastinal mass. It's behind the heart, behind the trachea. And uh, on biopsy, that seems to be a seminoma. He was treated with chemotherapy, was resolving of that mass, and he's cured. This is completely different from another phenomenon, which is the primary mediastinal uh, non-seminoma uh, non germ cell tumor. So if that tumor is in the anterior mediastinum space, that is not metastatic. That actually started in the primary, in the, in the mediastinum. You look at the testis, there is nothing in the testis, there is nothing elsewhere except that space. If this is a non-seminoma, this is much, much worse prognosis. Um, so even they are almost very similar uh, looking on the x-ray, the prognosis on the picture on the left over here is so much better than uh, the prognosis over here. So this is, could be a good risk disease, and this is a very poor disease. And we're trying to understand further why is that. So the International Committee uh, uh, looked back in 1997 about uh, 5,000 patients with non-seminoma and 660 patients with seminoma. And they followed those patients for about five years between 19, uh, I mean, um, the, the patients were treated with various regimen of chemotherapy between 1975 until 1990. That era had included a lot of treatments from uh, the you know, introduction of cisplatin to carboplatin. There were so many older regimens that I will review really quickly with you. So it was not really uh, all that homogeneous a group of patients. But they identify a, a multiple risk for these patients. So some of them has a good risk, some of them has intermediate risk, some of them had poor risk. And we used clinical and histological features. So seminomas are almost always good risk, with only 10% of patients can be intermediate risk. However, non-seminoma can be uh, you know, good, intermediate, or poor. And this is the outcome. So patient with good risk has more than 90, 95% chance of cure. Patient with intermediate risk has 75 to 80% chance of cure. And poor risk patient has only 50-50 chance of cure. This uh, data was uh, you know, separated very nicely with Kaplan-Meier curve. You can see you know, that patient with good risk doing so much better than intermediate and poor risk. However, this was 1997. Things got so much better since then. So this is our data that we presented at ASCO uh, last year. Um, and you can see that the good and intermediate risk are almost overlapping. So patients with intermediate uh, risk disease are really doing uh, so much better than before. And even patients with poor risk disease are doing so much better. So about 60 or 70% of patients um, are living uh, much longer and they are cured of that disease. So what have changed? I give all the credit to this man, uh, Larry Einhorn. Um, Larry did such amazing work and I would like to summarize this and I'm really fortunate and to have him as my mentor and inspiration. Um, so back in the uh, 80s, uh, Steve Williams and Larry Einhorn published this paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. They treated 258 patients with the BEP versus an older regimen, platinum, uh, velban, and bleomycin. And they found very similar, you know, outcome 74% of patients cured with BVP versus 83% with BEP, BEP become disease-free. However, the, the, the biggest uh, advantage of, uh, of BEP here was 
these side effects, really uh, BEP much safer, less toxic than the Velband regimen, and that has become uh, the new standard of care since that time. We also looked at these patient by risk criteria. Back then, there was no publication for uh, the international committee that I just showed you. So in 1987, we had the Indiana criteria and we have MD Anderson criteria, and they differ a little bit, but again, we have seen that there's two groups of patients. Patients are cured, and patients still have a poor prognosis. So that was a regimen that uh, at that time, BEP becomes standard of care, but clearly there was two groups of patients, good risk and poor risk. Memoria Sloan Kettering did a landmark study as well, and they're looking at good risk patients. So there was an old regimen called VAB6. I don't know if many of you guys remember this regimen. VAB6 included vilimblastine, cyclophosphamide, dactinomycin, bleomycin, and cisplatin versus four cycles of uh, EP, cis-etoposide. And there was no difference in the outcome, whether it's a progression-free survival or overall survival. So as a result, cisplatin etoposide for four cycles become the standard of care regimen at Memorial Sloan Kettering for good risk disease. Uh, then at Indiana University, we compared BEP times four cycles versus three cycles. Do we really need four cycles for patients with good risk? And uh, as you can see in this table here, there was no difference in survival between three or four cycles of BEP chemotherapy. So less is better, I will argue. So since that time, BEP times three become the standard of care for good risk patients at Indiana University and most of the world. The European also compared uh, the BEP times three versus uh, four cycles of chemotherapy. Again, there was no difference in the outcome in good risk disease. And there was a landmark study that was also done by the GTEG uh, and the European groups. This was comparing BEP times three cycles versus the memorial regimen of uh, EP times four. And this has continued to be a very controversial topic. You can see uh, of the overlapping progression-free survival and the overall survival, there was no difference statistically, although I would say that the BEP times three tend to be um, you know, uh, new, numerically uh, better over here. If you look at the numbers and the p-values, there is no difference. However, uh, it looks like 93%, uh, or actually, if you look at the death, 97% of patients with BEP are cured versus 93% of the patient or are cured by EP times four. So this topic become uh, a really controversial, probably one of the most uh, interesting discussion uh, between Memorial and Indiana. Uh, but both regimens become standard of care and excellent treatment regimen for patients with a good risk germ cell tumor. Multiple other groups tried to improve the outcome for intermediate and poor risk. So they tried to add taxol uh, over BEP uh, in intermediate risk. This was international study, ERTC uh, study that was a phase two, phase three. They tried to uh, enroll uh, 498 patients, but unfortunately closed short at 337 because of slow accrual. And um, on this study, there was a trend toward improvement in progression-free survival by adding taxol to the BEP. However, there was no difference in uh, uh, overall survival. Uh, and even, um, you know, when you look at the p-value in the progression-free survival was not different. So BEP times four still is the standard of care for intermediate and poor risk disease. 
Uh, another study done by ECOG also tried to compare BEP versus VIP, um, and there was, again, there is no difference in these regimens. So a lot of research has been done to refine uh, the best treatment uh, for patients with poor risk. And um, what come at the end of the day is they are about the same activity. And we, what we have been using this uh, regimen right now, if you guys have shortage in bleomycin as we do, uh, VIP become our go-to regimen right now because we don't have bleomycin. So patients with poor risk disease are getting VIP, which is uh, uh, VP16, ifosmide, and cisplatin when you don't have the bleomycin uh, available. Again, what about higher dose chemotherapy? Can we improve the cure rate for patients with poor risk if we give them more intense chemotherapy? And again, there was no improvement. If you look here, this is an ECOG study published by Bob Motzer from uh, Memorial. Uh, there was a trend toward uh, you know, progression-free survival. The yellow line looks a little bit better, but there is no improvement in overall survival. However, what that study showed for the first time that how fast um, the tumor marker decline with the first course of chemotherapy is really of prognostic significance. So if the tumor markers uh, go down quickly, a patient will do better. If the tumor markers are slow to de decrease with chemotherapy, that's actually a bad sign. And in that subgroup analysis, although that was not over here on the left, for that group of patients with slow marker decline, uh, high-dose chemotherapy was uh, better than standard-dose chemotherapy. Uh, Darren Feldman from Memorial recently also published a small phase two study of a newer regimen with paclitaxel, ifosmide, and cisplatin in uh, intermediate and poor risk disease. And again, he showed a very good outcome over here uh, in this uh, category. And the French, most recently in, in uh, ASCO, uh, Karim Fizazi uh, presented his study of a very intense uh, chemotherapy as a first-line uh, regimen. I would like to spend some time because, you know, this is the newest uh, data from germ cell tumor. What Karim did, he treated everybody first cycle with BEP chemotherapy. And then based on their marker decline, he, was ran he randomized the patient to either continue with BEP uh, for four cycles if they have a, a good marker decline, or if they have poor marker decline, randomized to either BEP or more dose-dense uh, chemotherapy. And when you look over here, you can see that there is improvement in progression-free survival with the dose-dense uh, regimen in patients who has a poor marker decline. However, when you look at the uh, overall survival, the, uh, the p-value was not really statistically significant. So again, we have been see seeing trend over and over again that more intense chemotherapy is not necessarily better uh, for poor-risk disease. And I would like to compare this data to our data that we did here at Indiana University. This is a retrospective study uh, that we combined the data from Indiana University and from Italy uh, in one large cohort. And you can see that our progression-free survival um, for poor-risk disease is about 56%, and for overall survival is about 75%. So this is way much better than the data published back in 1997, where you have about 50% uh, cure rate. Also, if you look at the intermediate risk disease, 
we are achieving 80% progression-free survival at two years and 90% uh, overall survival for intermediate risk. So overall, we have been doing really much better overall. However, not everybody is doing the same. Not everybody really doing uh, pretty good. If you look at the primary site, whether it is testicular primary, they are doing really well, versus primary mediastinal tumor. This is the picture I showed you when the tumor is in front of the heart. Uh, this is doing much poorly. Still 40 to 50% chance of cure. So I would argue that primary mediastinal non-seminoma germ cell tumor is a really bad disease and probably should be classified on its own. If patient has metastases that has spread to the liver or bone or brain, they are doing much worse than patient without these visceral metastases. This data has, uh, pub we published this data in the Annals of Oncology. Uh, my fellow uh, Nabil Adra is the first uh, author. And then we also looked, what if they have no risk factor whatsoever? The cure rate here is doing 80%, and those are poor risk patients. If they have more than one risk factor, you know, the, the survival getting worse and worse. So if they have uh, liver metastases or bone or brain, the more risk factors you add, the, the outcome looks worse. However, I would I, I like to show, you know, again, that from... Fizazi study and from Mozart study, that we have one extra piece of information to share with our patients right now. If they respond really well to the first cycle of chemotherapy, we have a very good chance they're going to do very well. If they, their markers decline slowly, there is a less chance their cancer is going to respond to that uh, chemotherapy. However, this continues to be a really rough estimate of how our, our patient going to do with poor risk disease. And I would argue that we really need a better uh, genomics and uh, epigenetics marker to both be prognostic and predictive for outcome in uh, germ cell tumor. What we have been using so far is histology, seminoma versus non-seminoma. What we have been using also is the primary site, whether it's a primary mediastinal or testicular primary, <coughs> the site of metastases, the tumor marker decline. All of these are very helpful, very important risk factors uh, but we really need something better. So we started looking at what else can we uh, offer our patient. So we, we hypothesized that platinum refractory germ cell tumor are actually hypermethylated compared to, to chemo-naive or chemosensitive germ cell tumor. So in uh, work with Mike, we started a retrospective study of patients with uh, testicular cancer who were treated at Indiana University over the last 10 years. We have archival tumors already you know, available for these patients. We have a clinical data available as well. So we pulled some of this data and we are trying to identify the following. The primary endpoint, can we show that the degree of global methylation and specific germ cell methylation has a, a significant prognostic uh, value? Can we differentiate between good risk and poor risk using the genomics uh, and epigenetics uh, signature? Can we differentiate between responders and non-responders uh, to chemotherapy in this group? And can we actually even tell from a patient with a stage one testis cancer who's going to relapse and who's not going to relapse based on their genomics and epigenetics marker? So um, this is some of the data that was supported by Alex uh, Lemonade Stand Foundation grant. And um, Mike uh, shared this data with us. And this is really still prelim data. 
And what you can see that you can very nicely differentiate between chemosensitive and chemoresistant disease. So those are patients uh, who were treated with platinum and uh, we're able to pull their uh, archival tumor sent to Mike and he was able to tell you know, from this nice uh, heat map uh, chemosensitive versus chemoresistant. This is really still very few uh, samples and more uh, data are really getting, uh, we're working on right now. And before we move on, I wanted to share another very important and very interesting biomarker for at least clinical stage one testis cancer, which is microRNA. So this is a study presented uh, by Dr. Dickman from uh, Germany uh, in the ASCO symposium uh, last year, showing that microRNA 371 uh, to 373 uh, has been very important uh, biomarker to tell before orchiectomy it was high, after orchiectomy it went down to zero. Uh, in the patient who are cured, in the patient who are not cured, it did not really normalize after their uh, um, orchiectomy. So that was even in patients with normal tumor markers. So not all testicular cancer secrete AFP or HCG. So even in the negative cases, this microRNA was a very helpful uh, biomarker. This work still ongoing and uh, more validation studies are needed, but I thought it was very exciting. The same data was shown uh, before and after chemotherapy. Patients who responded to chemotherapy has a significant decline uh, in their uh, uh, microRNA. So something to keep in mind, I'm really excited about this microRNA and more uh, to see in the next few years. So I hope I did not overwhelm you with the so many studies that has been done for first-line chemotherapy. <laughs> so we're going to move on to second-line chemotherapy. So some of these patients, uh, unfortunately, you can see about 50% or 40% will relapse after first-line chemotherapy in poor-risk patients. So what Larry Einhorn published back in uh, 2007 is uh, a landmark study of high-dose chemotherapy with carboplatin and etoposide. Uh, for patients treated between 1996 and 2004. We have used two tandem transplants of uh, high-dose chemotherapy followed by stem cell transplant. And in that study, we treated 184 patients. And you can see that even if they failed first-line chemotherapy, there is about 60% chance they will be cured with a second-line chemotherapy using this, this regimen. Uh, Darren Feldman also published the, the memorial regimen of high-dose chemotherapy using the TICE regimen, which is a taxol iphosphamide followed by three cycles of high-dose chemotherapy with carboplatin and etoposide. And in that uh, single-arm study also, uh, they found about you know, 50 to 60% chance uh, of cure using uh, this uh, high-dose chemotherapy. Uh, just this ASCO, we presented our um, follow-up study of high-dose chemotherapy from 2004 until 2014. Uh, in this study, we have uh, 364 patients. And you can see that our two years progression-free survival is 60%. Our two years overall survival is 66%. So we're, we're very excited that we're still able to cure patients after failing first-line chemotherapy. And uh, the follow-up here was 3.3 uh, years. This data was presented again by our fellow Nabil Adra at ASCO oral presentation just uh, last week. Uh, we were able to identify some risk groups here. Not everybody did well. So for example, if you use high-dose chemotherapy as second line, there is much better chance of cure, about 
But if you use it a third line, you can look at this half full or half empty glass. There's 42% chance of cure if you use it as third line. So we're still able to cure patient as a third line using high-dose chemotherapy. If you look at the seminomas, 88% of the patients with seminoma are cured uh, with high-dose chemotherapy versus 48% with non-seminoma. And this is, I think, the most important slide uh, that I would like to focus on, which is platinum refractory germ cell tumors. Those are patients defined by progressing either on chemotherapy, so they're getting BEP or uh, any regimen of first line, they're progressing on it, or within four to six weeks after finishing that chemotherapy. Even if you give them high-dose chemotherapy, they have a very low chance of cure using that uh, chemotherapy, only 30%, versus other patients who relapse six months or a year after first-line chemotherapy, we have 70% chance of curing those patients. So I would argue that platinum refractory disease is still a very important problem, not only in germ cell tumor, but eventually in other diseases as well. So, and if we summarize all this data for salvage high-dose chemotherapy, uh, I listed them on this table. The first line is the high-dose uh, paper by Dr. Einhorn published in the New England. Uh, second line is the memorial regimen showing about 50% five years overall survival. And the third line here is our um, uh, data just presented at ASCO with high-dose chemotherapy. And we have about 60 to 66% chance of overall survival uh, using uh, this regimen. Um, there was one retrospective study that compared high-dose chemo to conventional chemotherapy. High-dose chemo is really, you need a transplant center. You need a uh, um, patient to be able to be treated in a tertiary care center. It's really difficult for small community centers to treat patients with high-dose chemotherapy. So a lot of centers in the community would use conventional-dose chemotherapy, for example, uh, TIP regimen or others. And uh, this retrospective study compared 1,500 patients who underwent either high-dose chemo or uh, conventional-dose chemotherapy. And you can see here that actually high-dose chemo looks better uh, whether you are looking at uh, uh, progression-free survival or overall survival. The hazard ratio was 0 0.44 uh, for progression-free survival. However, this answer still not, this question is not answered. And we are all looking forward for this uh, ongoing study right now, the Alliance Tiger study. That will be an international study to enroll for 20 patients. And they will be randomized to either receive TIP or uh, the high-dose chemotherapy using the memorial regimen, the TICE, looking for overall survival. Uh, this study is now started in multiple sites in the US and Europe. And we're looking for that result. However, what happened to patients who progressed after high-dose chemotherapy? Unfortunately, all of them will die. Uh, they are uh, very few patients, but imagine somebody who's 20 years old dying of testicular cancer. Uh, there was so many studies done in that space. There was more than 10 phase two clinical trials using different regimens, different uh, targeted therapy. All of them were negative. The progression-free survival or overall survival is about uh, four months. So we started you know, looking what else can we offer those patients? What can we do to help them? And um, this is a very uh, nice slide that basically show you 
what we kind of discussed a little bit earlier, that germ cell tumors are in general hypomethylated tumors uh, compared to normal somatic cells. So uh, this is a seminoma, and this graph basically sh uh, saying there is no dark spots, there is no methylation on seminoma uh, compared to normal tumors or normal somatic, uh, or, uh, somatic uh, tumors. Mike will be able to explain the slide much better than me, but what I like to see that on the right, germ cell tumors are hypomethylated compared to normal tissues and compared to somatic tumors. What happens when these tumors become platinum resistant? They become very similar to uh, somatic tumors, so become hypermethylated. So a lot of work has been done over the years in that space. What we're presenting today is it just, uh, you know, trying to understand the biology better. And uh, I kind of put in this table uh, all the previous attempt to use hypomethylating agents in germ cell tumors. So back in the 70s, uh, there was a small study that used 5-azacytidine, uh, and uh, two out of four patients achieved a partial remission. So, so subsequently to that, two uh, small studies in 1992 and 1993 used 5-ASA uh, uh, in phase two studies and none of them were positive. Um, however, now we're trying to understand more data uh, to help us figure that question. So that led me to what I believe it's one of the most important papers I read in the last five years. And this is my paper. And uh, what <coughs> I like to show you, I'm sure you, you saw this uh, slide so many times, but for, for, a patient, for a doctor who used to treat testis cancer, uh, this is multiple cell lines that might have treated with 5-ASA. Uh, uh, the upper lines here are somatic tumors, and these are germ cell tumors. And we can see that with a very low dose of azacytidine, they have this, you know, uh, this effect of killing those cells. The more exciting one is this line here that you're able to really kill all of the cells and that's the cell lines that are resistant to, uh, to cisplatin. So Mike showed that with the low dose of azacytidine we're able to kill those cells. So that was really exciting. What was more exciting that if you pre-treat those cells with aza and then expose them to, to cisplatin you're able to, to make them cisplatin sensitive again. So uh, I'm not going to explain this as good as you do Mike but uh, just bear with me. So the, the line on top is cisplatin resistant line and you have to treat them with so many or higher doses of cisplatin to be able to start killing those cells. The one in the, uh, in the middle or, uh, down here is this is the line that is cisplatin sensitive. You're able to kill those cells pretty nicely with cisplatin. However, the one in the middle is cisplatin resistant cell line who was pre-treated with azacytidine and now it's becoming very sensitive to cisplatin again. So I thought this was a very exciting uh, data. So after this, as Mike mentioned, um, we, uh, I called Mike, we tried to work together and we've been very successful since then. But before we move on, I wanted to share with you when Donald Trump tried to do, uh, to make azacytidine great again. <laughs> uh, so, so I was uh, uh, shocked to see this paper. So of course, Donald Trump, Dr. Trump is different from Donald Trump. Uh, back uh, with Larry and Bruce Roth, uh, ECOG did a, a small phase two study. They used azacytidine at a high dose, so 150 milligram per meter square for five days on continuous infusion basis every three weeks. 
they treated 17 patients. All of them progressed with this uh, dose of uh, ASA. So, and this was what, uh, nine, uh, 1993, so that was a, uh, a long time ago. However, what we have learned that we don't have to use such a high dose uh, azacitidine, and we actually, we don't want to use it by itself. We would like to use it as Mike did uh, to resensitize the tumor to cisplatin and maybe make the tumor sensitive to cisplatin again. So it is so hard to get azacitidine. It's now out of patent. Drug companies is not going to give it to us. It's really so hard to do studies with the aza. So luckily, we were able to uh, find uh, this new or novel uh, hypomethylating agent, SGI-110. SGI-110 is a dinucleotide of decitabine and dioxyguanosine, and it's basically a long-acting decitabine. It's going to resist the, uh, the breakdown by uh, DNA methyltransferase and stay longer half-life and expose the tumors for a longer hypomethylation. The problem, one of the problems with 5-ASA, you give it, I don't know, a few hours later, the hypomethylation effect is gone. So this is really a good long-acting hypomethylating agent that we decided to study and we were able to get the drug uh, to use on our clinical trial. We were also supported by my colleague, Daniela Matei, who used the same uh, drug in ovarian cancer. So ovarian cancer also can be uh, resistant to uh, platinum. The usually used regimen for ovarian cancer is carboplatin and paclitaxel. A lot of those patients, unfortunately, will progress after first-line carboplatin. So what Daniela has done, she did a phase one, phase two study of studying carboplatin plus SGI-110 in ovarian cancer. The stage one of that study was a dose escalation study, uh, looking at day one to five of SGI-110, uh, followed by carboplatin on day eight every 28 days, and then randomizing in this stage two of the study to either uh, the maximum tolerated dose of SGI-110 plus carboplatin versus doctor choice, paclitaxel, topotecan, or liposomal doxorubicin. And uh, on the uh, upper corner here, you can see the schema of the study, which we have used a very similar schema in our testis cancer coming next. She used basically hypomethylating drugs for five days. She did the biopsy before and the biopsy after the treatment, and she used the carboplatin on day eight. So what she's trying to do is to prime the tumor to try to resume sensitivity to carboplatin and then use the carboplatin again. In that dose finding study, this is some prelim data that Daniela uh, shared with us, she was able to show some increased expression of some of the genes of interest she studied. And over here on the right-hand side is basically showing that she had multiple partial responses and multiple stable diseases. And even with the low dose of 30 milligram per meter square, she was able to achieve a very good partial response and effect on, on line one. So the, the, that low dose of 30 milligram per meter square was able to induce uh, hypomethylation on line one. So based on that data, we, uh, uh, we were able to secure a grant from Concord Cancer Foundation and ASCO to conduct a phase one study of hypomethylating SGI-110 plus cisplatin, not carboplatin, but cisplatin in testicular cancer who failed uh, previous first and second line chemotherapy. All right. So the primary endpoint is to identify the safety and toxicity and the dose-limiting toxicity of uh, this combination. 
and to see if we can resume sensitivity to cisplatin by priming the tumor by SGI-110. And of course, we wanted to do a bunch of correlative studies with Mike uh, to understand the pharmacodynamic effect of SGI on this refractory tumor. This is the schema, which is very similar to the schema of Daniela. However, I would like you to pay some attention here. We have the five days of SGI-110, followed by cisplatin on day eight. We are doing a biopsy on day one and the biopsy on day eight before the cisplatin to see what's the change in methylation in these tumors. We are doing this for uh, four to six cycles, and if the patient is responding or is uh, having a stable to partial response, we'll continue on maintenance uh, SGI-110 by itself without uh, chemotherapy. The, initially, we designed the study to, have, to be a dose escalation study. We wanted to see uh, how high we can go up on the dose. Um, and uh, this is the schema. We, we treat patients for two cycles. If they have a uh, response, they continue for four more treatments. And then if they progress, they go off the study. If they continue to respond, they continue on maintenance SGI-110. And I would like to share with you the first four subjects we treated on this study. This is unpublished data. And the first patient over here, this is a patient uh, with 70% yolk sac tumor and 30% embryonal carcinoma. He progressed after BEP first line, high-dose chemotherapy second line, and TIP as a third line. And he achieved, uh, after starting on the treatment over here, his AFP was uh, elevated above 1,000. Starting treatment, uh, I think four doses, he got a partial response, and then unfortunately he progressed soon thereafter. Uh, this uh, patient unfortunately died right now. Uh, the second patient, he was a patient with choriocarcinoma who progressed after receiving first-line BEP and second-line uh, high-dose chemotherapy. His HCG was elevated, and he normalized his HCG, as you can see here, back to zero. He has a lung metastasis that went down in size and achieved a complete response. That patient has a very interesting story. Uh, he had actually brain lesion before uh, starting the treatment that had uh, received brain radiation too. Uh, he wanted to go ahead and resect this lung lesion, but before that we did a, a brain MRI, and we have found that one of his brain lesions has actually tripled in size after this study. So we went ahead and resected that brain lesion, and it was necrosis. There was no tumor there. Uh, so the patient went ahead and he took that lesion out. That was still residual choriocarcinoma. Uh, a few months later, he progressed, unfortunately, of the study. So even though we achieved a, a complete serological response here, the patient eventually progressed. The subsequent two studies, uh, or two patients on the study, are patients who uh, progressed uh, on the study without really any uh, response. So uh, at this point, we uh, looked at the adverse event that we had so far on the study. The most common adverse event were neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. And we decided to um, change the cycle from every 21 days to every 28 days to replicate Daniela uh, design. And we decided to cap the dose at SGI without any dose escalation to stay at 30 milligram per meter square. And we will treat all the subsequent 11 patients uh, on this uh, 30 milligram per meter square dose. That was supported by finding from Mike that we don't really want to use a cytotoxic dose. We want to use a hypomethylating dose of these tumors. The goal is not to kill this cancer, just to prime them 
to make them hopefully sensitive again to cisplatin. So the study now uh, is on hold until we uh, get uh, new IRB approval, and uh, we will resume hopefully in September. Uh, another exciting study we're working on is a phase two study with the brintoximab vidotin, again in those patients with refractory germ cell tumor. As you know, brintoximab vidotin um, has been approved uh, in uh, Hodgkin lymphoma and in uh, anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Uh, it is a novel antibody drug conjugate that combine uh, anti-CD30 antibody to a, a monomethyl uh, MMAE, which is extremely toxic chemotherapy. You cannot use it uh, by itself. So it's attached to these antibodies. The antibody finds CD30 on the cells, get engulfed, and then once it gets uh, exposed to the lysosome, it breaks the linkage between the chemotherapy and the antibody, and the chemotherapy is basically uh, a taxane-like chemotherapy, uh, which inhibits the uh, spindle. So we have now a phase two study looking at brintoximab vidotin in refractory germ cell tumor. The study is now open and enrolling patients. Uh, the reason we have opened this study is part of the phase one, phase two, multi-solid tumor uh, study that was done uh, with brintoximab vidotin. We have treated five previously uh, failed all sorts of treatment of uh, germ cell tumor. One of these patients was uh, um, treated with high-dose chemotherapy and uh, failed, and he received brintoximab vidotin, and now he's cured as a third-line chemotherapy. So now, based on that single patient, we have this phase two study right now, which enrolling patient at both IU and Memorial Sloan Kettering. All right, so where are we going from here? So it's really exciting times uh, to, to treat those patients. We are able to cure them with first-line chemotherapy, with high-dose chemotherapy, but we still have a way to go to try to understand multiple things. For me, it's very important to try to identify a better predictive and prognostic biomarker for those patients um, to help us tell the patient who are going to be cured or going to be refractory to cisplatin from the patient who are not using a methylation or methylome signature. We would like to stratify patient into risk category, not only by clinical uh, features, but also by molecular features, and also uh, to try to select treatment approach and predict response based on this either targeted uh, approach or the uh, methylation signature, and eventually try to minimize unnecessary exposure to treatment toxicity. In conclusion, the treatment of patients with metastatic germ cell tumor continue to evolve. By the way, the, the BEP and the etoposide and all these regimens has been approved by the FDA without any randomized uh, phase three study, but that was a long time ago. Uh, preclinical and clinical trials will determine the most effective uh, dosing schema and optimal sequencing and treatment combination, and the goal remain individualized treatment to optimize patient outcome. I would like to thank our patient and their families, uh, our uh, uh, grant funders, the Alex Lemonade Stand Foundation grant uh, with Mike and the ASCO Career Development Award uh, from Concord Cancer Foundation, uh, my collaborator, Mike Spinella, Brock um, Christensen, from uh, Dartmouth. It has been such a great and fruitful uh, collaboration, and I'm looking forward to more uh, continuing this uh, collaboration. Uh, Larry Einhorn, George Sandusky, Roberto Pili, and Nasir Hanna from IU, Darren Feldman and Bob Mozart from Memorial, and Andrea Nicky from Italy. 
all of them really, uh, we had such a great work together and we continue to collaborate to hopefully cure this disease one day. Thank you very much. That was a very uh, interesting talk and a great uh, refresher on a uh, really important disease and uh, curable uh, curative therapy for a uh, really highly malignant disease. Uh, any questions for Dr. Albany? Yes. Um, thank you so much for your talk. I'm just wondering, this is like a general, you know, wonder question. Like what makes vestibular cancer so responsive to standard care therapy? Because like, there isn't any other tumor that, that I know of, yep. metastatic or not, that yep. can respond this well yep. first time. Yep. You know, I would like to think it is the methylation. Uh, but if you can think in a bigger uh, picture, germ cell tumor versus any other tumors, uh, any other tissues are somatic tumors, whether it's the skin or the lung or whatever tissues it is, it's somatic. Germ cell in life, their goal is to transmit life from generation to generation. Uh, so they are so sensitive to any damage. You don't have, you know, if the sperms or the ova are exposed to radiation or chemo, they will die rather than transmitting defective genes to the second or third generation. Uh, so by nature, they created so, you know, uh, you know so, so any tumor that starts from a germ cell, it probably is very uh, sensitive to chemotherapy. But if you dig beyond philosophy into biology, the biggest difference is the methylation. These tumors are not methylated uh, unless they become chemoresistant. Um, in a way, you need the sperm I mean, I'm not the biologist, so excuse my uh, clinician or philosophical standpoint here. But the sperm and the fertilized egg need to express all the genes in, in order to create an embryo. And eventually, once the embryo created, you're going to have differentiated tissues. Um, so I guess that's an embryo that started in the testis, which is a testis cancer, is going to be so sensitive to chemotherapy. Just philosophical approach here. I was uh, wondering about your, your schedule for your trial with uh, SG-110. Why did you wait three days after the last dose of SG-110? You know, chemo don't work on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is a very good question. And um, it's just to be, uh, you know, logistics, because we want to do the biopsies um, on like day one and day, and we found that, okay, we're going to treat patients from Monday to Friday and then bring them back on Monday to, to do the biopsy. It's uh, just logistics. There is uh, no scientific reason for that. Uh, right now, we're trying to do a treatment day one to day four and repeat uh, biopsies on day five, actually, within the same week. So, yep. Chris, I was just wondering, it must, it's must be limiting to have enough patients that are chemo resistant, and I just wondered if there's like a dog model or some other model that could be applied other than cell. So there is very few animal models for testicular germ cell tumor. Mike, you're working with one of these models. We're doing xenografts, but there's not a good uh, transgenic model yeah. of testicular germ cell tumors right at the moment. We're, we're trying to create uh, a PDX model at IU with Roberto Pili. Uh, he joined us about six months ago now. Um, we're trying to get platinum refractory tumors to put into a PDX model, but we're still not very successful so far. Yeah. Uh, where, if anything, is transplant in any of this assessment, or is that 
uh, the high dose chemotherapy. And is that, so is that considered the transplant, yes. So what we what we do, we give those patients who failed first line chemotherapy, let's say BEP, they failed BEP, they get a dose of nipogen. We do the stem cell collection, and then we treat them with this high dose chemotherapy for three days, and then we give them their stem cell back on day five. It takes them about two to three weeks to recover, you know, and then we hit them again with the high-dose chemotherapy. Memorial regimen, they do the high-dose chemotherapy three times. We do it only two times. Yep. Yep. Oh, thank you very much for a great talk. What is the rationale of maintenance hypermethylating aging? It's a very good question. Um, and I personally don't know that it's going to work by itself, but we don't know the answer to that. Uh, so the goal, hopefully, is a cure. So if you can cure them by, uh, treat them by four or six cycles of a combination, there should be no role for the, you know, for the maintenance. Uh, but we wanted to see if they achieved only stable disease, is single agent going to have any activity? And I don't think so, but we're not going to be able to know the answer until we do it. So the, in other way, what Mike did is a single agent activity was very active in cell lines, and the combination was even more active. So in, in our patients, we did not want to take the chance of only single agent by itself, so we did put it at the end. We treated them with combination, and then we did single agent afterward. Any more questions? I saw that there were um, there's like kit mutations in a certain percentage of tumors. Has anyone ever tried targeting kit? Yes, two? twice. Two studies were negative, unfortunately. Yep. With uh, with uh, yes, with Cleavec as well. Yep. Yeah. Any more questions? All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.